The American workplace is upending the status quo and undergoing radical changes. Employees, investors, and legislators are challenging employers across the country to take an honest look at their current systems and prove they're tackling inequality in the workplace. America is demanding better from their employers. The question is, are they listening? The Shift, Finding Equity at Work, is a podcast dedicated to exploring the changes taking place across the modern-day workplace. We'll talk with industry leaders who are rising to the challenge to promote equity at work from all angles and put change into action. We're your hosts. I'm Maria Colacurcio, CEO of the leading workplace equity platform, Cindio, and Sean Mendy, co-founding partner of Concrete Rose Capital. We hope you'll join us for the conversation on The Shift, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Joining us today on the second episode of The Shift is Dan Hesse, former CEO of Sprint, current chairman of Akamai Technologies, and board member at Just Capital. Dan has received numerous accolades over the years, including a Lifetime Achievement Award from Corporate Responsibility Magazine, and was named one of the best turnaround CEOs of all time by Fierce Wireless. He was a champion of ESG and corporate social responsibility long before they were part of the national conversation and constantly ranked as one of Glassdoor's most highly rated executives by his employees. Dan, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to The Shift. Thanks, Maria. Good to be here. So let's talk first a little bit about your background. As we just mentioned in the intro, multiple publications have recognized you as a top turnaround CEO, and the numbers really support that. In fact, in your last two years as CEO, Sprint's total shareholder return ranked number one among all S&P 500 companies. Netflix, by the way, was number two. This happened against a backdrop of Sprint championing equity, diversity, and corporate responsibility. So obviously, as Sprint and you have demonstrated, companies can prioritize these issues and remain profitable. In fact, that was really something that you started talking about a long time ago. So let's start with, for CEOs and other leaders really trying to figure out how to navigate this, particularly in where we find ourselves today, an economically volatile time, what advice would you start out with? Well, my experience, and I think it's been borne out by evidence of the things we've looked at at Just Capital and other places, is that the companies that are the most successful over the long term have very strong cultures. And culture is really built on three pillars, their people, their customers, and some sense of purpose. In essence, uh, very similar to what we would call stakeholder capitalism. I would say to other CEOs, you know, first of all, make sure that you have a strong culture and that you can define it. It's amazing how many CEOs and company leaders I talk to, they say, oh yeah, we have a really strong culture. And then I just ask them, well, then tell me about it, define it. Then they can't define it, they can't put it in words. And you can't measure something and improve on it, in my view, unless you can articulate it and then measure it. So what we did at Sprint on a regular basis is every quarter, we would survey all the employees. How are we doing and walking the talk on what we call the 10 imperatives, the 10 elements of our culture. And then we would also pick other, we'll call it quantitative measures. So for example, innovation was an important part of our culture. We would also, so we would ask our people, how are we doing in innovation? But we would also take other metrics, like how many patents are we being granted as another area of a way to look at how, how innovative we're being. You know, I'd say number one is define your culture, measure it and treat it just like all of your other financial metrics. You know, I find that you get so much more effort 
and commitment from your people when you take the things that are important to them just as important as the things as things are to uh, to shareholders. The other thing I would say is that the kinds of skills that are going to be required for great leadership going forward are changing kind of in this new environment. We'll call it remote, quasi-remote, and what have you. And that'll have implications for success going forward. So make sure you're developing leaders who communicate well, who have empathy, and who can, if you will, exercise what used to be known as the soft skills well as leaders. Everything you just said fascinates me and is totally aligned with the things that we care about. I'm curious, though, you know, you talk about the importance of culture. Companies can have negative cultures and there's decisions that you make when you're actually deciding what you want your explicit company culture to be. Can you talk about what actually shaped your thinking on culture and what you thought was important? You've got a reputation as being somebody who was at the forefront of ESG, somebody who cared about corporate social responsibility before it was in vogue, before everybody kind of had to have something to say about that. You were doing it and you were doing it very well. What made you ahead of the times here? What, what shaped your thinking on culture and leadership and the way that you approach it? It's really a great question. I think, you know, first of all, you know, it's kind of culture being part of stakeholder capitalism. I was fortunate enough to have my very first job coming out of school at the old AT&T, the uh, kind of the bell system. And back then it was a pretty unique company in that it embraced stakeholders capitalism long before ESG came along or long before the term came along. For example, it's focus on our people or our employees on almost every wall. No job is so urgent. It can't be done safely. They were really focused on our financial well-being and financial literacy. With respect to customers, uh, we had almost a purpose in terms of what we called universal service, providing good service to every American, regardless of where they lived. Our investors, our, our shareholders, we didn't think about it in terms of stock price. We thought about it in terms of making sure we were successful enough, made money enough each quarter to pay the dividend because we were known as the widows and orphan stock. And actually your first couple of years in the company, you had to go out and meet five shareholders every year to get an appreciation for all these retirees, how important that paycheck of the dividend was to their living. So you understood your, if you will, the purpose of, of making money. And then in terms of our communities, Bell Labs is an example. We looked at Bell Labs in terms of, yes, it can create all these new products for AT&T, but it helped us win the Second World War, you know, developing radar. It developed the transistor. It discovered the Big Bang Theory. It was a national resource. So we, this was something we did for our communities. So I think, first of all, starting there was really helpful. I'd say that what I learned about culture was you had to have a culture that reflects your own beliefs as the CEO and that you also think will engage your people. So when I walked into Sprint, Sprint was... Uh, close to bankruptcy. And one of the reasons uh, it was, probably the major reason it was close to bankruptcy, was that it was a failed merger between Sprint and Nextel, kind of a merger of equals. And because of that, even worse than not having a culture at all, is having two competing cultures. Almost everybody told me within the first two or three sentences when I met them, whether they were legacy Sprint or legacy Nextel. So I engaged, this is creating the culture, I engaged all the employees in creating the culture for the new company. I got up in front of all the employees and said, look, and I described these two competing cultures and there were all these laughs in the audience because everybody knew it. There were two teams. I said, look, there's great elements of the sprint culture. And I rattled off a few. There's great elements 
of Nextel Culture, I rattled off a few, and there are great elements of other really successful companies. So I had 25, you call almost Boy Scout qualities. I sent out a survey to all the employees of the company and said, look, we're going to create a new culture, one that you're engaged in, you invest in, you buy into. I want you to vote for the 10 attributes that will make up the culture of the company that number one is going to win, and number two is the company that you want to work for every day. And then after getting that back, I kind of unveiled, okay, these are the 10. And then every quarter at every one of my all-employee meetings, we would talk about these 10 attributes. And we would also do a, a survey every quarter of all of them on how are we doing against these 10 in terms of walking the talk. And so it became in this engagement process. And it was particularly needed at Sprint because, you know, at the time, the company was facing bankruptcy. And this was really a way to galvanize employees, to bring them together. And when I think of it kind of as a, its importance, when I retired from the company, my going away party, there was banners on the wall. It was this big kind of auditorium and they were the 10 elements of our culture. That was what you know people remember that period of time for. And when I would talk to people and I got hundreds of letters from, you know, from employees of the firm after I left, and that's really what they talked about was the culture of the firm, how much they enjoyed coming to work every day, how much it meant to them. You got me on a subject I can drone on for a long time on, and I don't want to do that. But those are some of my thoughts on culture. I'd welcome you to drone on. That was a great answer and a really amazing example of kind of shared leadership and just trusting your team and really engaging folks in a way to get them totally bought in. And as you said, to galvanize the, uh, the mission of the organization. So thanks for that example. And that was not droning on by any means. Not at all. And in fact, a couple of the things you said, I'm super interested in because you came in to a company that was facing bankruptcy, yet focused on culture, mission and values. How did you balance what I can only imagine was extraordinary pressure around achieving objectives and creating excellence within the company? How do you look back and look at the way that you balanced empathy and compassion with an absolute focus on results. Were you thinking about that at the time? Were you just sort of really intentional about building the culture first and having faith, blind faith at that point that the results would follow? Or can you explain to us what was in your head or how you think about that? Well, you know, I knew what we needed to do. Actually, when you're coming into a company, you know, kind of what you have to focus on are number one, you know, what does your strategy need to be? What your strategy is, is what gets done. Then who's going to do it, the team? And the third is the culture. And you need to have them kind of fit in with each other. So for me, I saw culture as a means to an end in that the reason Sprint was financially doing so poorly for its shareholders is because it was losing customers. And so at the forefront of our culture was customer centricity. So I didn't think it as a trade-off at all. It was how do I get people aligned and energized around those things that the company needs to do to succeed really for all stakeholders and especially shareholders. By the way, there's this virtuous cycle between people and customers. Happy employees, those that like the company they're working for, do a better job of serving customers. And happy customers make happy people because your people like customers that are happy. So you make sure that they're empowered to take care of, of, of customers. And, and what I saw kind of move in lockstep 
was employee satisfaction and customer satisfaction. They kind of, they went together. And it was also part of the culture was engaging everyone in it. So for example, the people in the care organization, they were empowered to do whatever it took to satisfy that customer because that was part of our culture. And if we were going to walk the talk that customers were that important, they needed to be empowered to basically fix what the customer's issues were. The only thing that I would really complain about is that the customer called again for the same problem. So they were empowered to fix it the first time. The other thing we did in terms of getting this culture focused on the customer through the organization is every Thursday we have what we're called Thank You Thursdays. And all the employees across the company, whether you were, didn't matter what department you worked in, and included me, we'd go into the cafeteria. And if you only had five minutes that day or 10 minutes that day, or if you had 30 minutes that day, we wrote handwritten notes, thank you notes to our customers, thanking them for doing business with Sprint. And of course, this is in the text and email electronic days. And of course, that's the kind of company we were, but it engaged everyone in the company in the same culture that satisfying customers wasn't only the job of the people in the front line who dealt with customers every day. It was part of our culture. We were all in the same boat, no matter how far away from the customer you were inside the company. So we can talk about other goals that we had on the, on the CSR side as well. I didn't see them really as trade-offs. I saw them as a way of galvanizing people to do what needed to be done to have us perform better. Yeah, we'd, we'd love to hear actually more about that. What are some specific examples of some of the initiatives that you spearheaded that Sprint, that you took risks on, to put it bluntly, by trying a Sprint in terms of social responsibility? So, um, you know, we called our uh, purpose, which starts with a P, we came up with the, the four P's of purpose. And those for us, and this might get it at the earlier question as well, were the planet, products, privacy, and philanthropy. Just a few examples, because there are many, many programs, if you will, Sean. On the planet, you know, we led the industry. I was the chairman of the CTIA, which is the Industry Trade Association, but also the entire company worked with our suppliers of phones and electronics to standardize around a common like plug, a power plug for phones, the mini USB. I don't know if you guys are so young, you remember when every single phone had a different charger. And they changed every year. And even if you had a Nokia phone, if I had two different models, they had different chargers. The amount of e-waste that created and customer dissatisfaction, because they'd always have to buy new chargers, they'd break one, they couldn't borrow one, was tremendous. And for the industry, we made money on these dang chargers. I mean, it cost us, typical manufacturer, three bucks to make one, and we sold them for 30. You know, that's a great margin. But we came around employees to do something and the company to do something that was good for the planet and good for customers. Another thing we did is our people engaged, not only our customers, but the customers from all our competitors to bring in their cell phones to recycle. And we would pay customers to bring in those phones, to give them an incentive to come in. And we set Guinness records for the amount of phone recycling, which kept tons and tons of e-waste out of, out of landfill. So that's on the planet side. On the product side, we had mobile technology, we had speech to text, text to speech. So we created these ID packs, what we call for accessibility to help people who were sight impaired or hearing impaired or the autistic. For safety, we created, you know, texting and driving was a big issue. We created a product which we gave away to free 
to all of our customers called Sprint Drive First. So if you were a parent, it would sense as soon as the phone was traveling more than 10 miles an hour, it couldn't text, it couldn't send or receive text anymore. So for your kids, you, you didn't have to worry about them texting when they were at the wheel. Privacy, it's a big issue now, but when we started looking at it, this is more than a decade ago, we were the only carrier who said, you know, all this data that our customers are sending over our phones, it's not our data, it's theirs. So we were the only one to use your data for advertising and for other purposes, and this cost us millions of dollars. We asked our customers to opt in to give us permission rather than you having to opt out to your data being used. We're the only one that did that. And that actually, Maria's question earlier, that cost us some money. We believe in the short term, but overall in long term, it helped create that brand and that trust where, you know, when the Reputation Institute you know, ranks the overall corporate reputation of the 1,500 largest companies in the world, Sprint's reputation improved more than any company in the world, more than any of the other 1,500 large companies across the world. And last philanthropy, we didn't really have money to give to philanthropy, you know, for philanthropic purposes, but all of our employees were encouraged to work in their communities, to join nonprofit boards, civic organizations, et cetera. They were given time off. They were encouraged to go vote, to get involved in their communities, those kinds of things. So these are a few quick examples of the kinds of things that we, that we did that we think helped kind of all stakeholders. And this was been like, again, like areas like privacy and planet before others were doing. Those are just incredible examples of how doing well and doing good, you know, aren't mutually exclusive, how you can make the right decision both for society and for your company. I'm curious, and I'm going off script here, why do you think so many corporate leaders are are struggling to to follow in your footsteps and to make the decisions that you just made? What's leading folks astray? Is it as simple as fundamental culture issues, or is there something else at play there? I think there's still a number of people that don't believe that doing these things are in the interest of shareholders. There's still a little bit of a conflict between stakeholder and shareholder capitalism, and it's counterintuitive to a certain extent that doing these things that might cost you more, like if you take a long-term view, if you like paying your employees, your frontline employees more actually will improve your stock performance over the long-term. And part of it is because the pressures of the financial markets are so short-term in nature. I think executives and CEOs need to feel it's like you have a long-term contract. If you're thinking about your jobs only here quarter to quarter, You'll do a lot of the wrong things that are the right thing to do just for that quarter, but are the wrong thing to do long-term. So for those who have a board, like CEOs or executives who have a board that is supportive of taking a long-term view, I think they can, I think most executives do believe that over the long-term, corporate social responsibility pays off. In the short-term, it is harder to make that argument. So, Sean, this reminds me so much of something we were talking about over text a week ago when you were saying I was asking you the question of what are you hearing, not only amongst your portfolio, but just your friends or the community of black and people of color, entrepreneurs, founders, CEOs, and what do they think is going to happen with pending economic volatility? Maybe it's a recession, maybe it's not. And you told me that. There's a lot of chatter in the community that folks expect it to be an excuse 
for companies and leaders to start rolling back these commitments they've made around gender and race and equity. But then the flip side of it, which I thought was very optimistic of you as you balanced it, is you said it's also an opportunity. So can you just share that perspective a little bit? Because I want to hear what Dan thinks about, you know, what happens when markets change and is there sort of this, there's two paths to either roll it back or you double down. Yeah, this will be an example of when of somebody asking a question in a more sophisticated way than it's answered. I don't think it's much more to add than, than what you just said. I think there's real fear that I think it is validated or not fear, I guess skepticism that a recession will result in corporate leaders who seem to have just gotten it two years ago, walking back some of the commitments that they've made and kind of hiding behind the excuse of cost cutting and tightening belts and just having to focus on fundamentals and poor business. I'd like to flip it and think about, you know, this reset as an opportunity to really think about what's fundamentally important to us and where we need to be making changes more aggressively. So how can we protect the progress that's been made and also look for new opportunities to really push forward progress when it comes to corporate social responsibility or equity and just all these things that that I know, Dan, that you care about, just given the fact that we're, we're spending time together today. So would be curious in your reaction to that and what, what opportunities you see during a recession or a reset to actually accelerate progress as opposed to slow it. Yeah, you know, I'm maybe a little more optimistic in that I, I don't think we're going to regress. I think it's here to stay. As I look at kind of just what's changed over the last you know, five or six years, I say number one is we have demographic changes. My generation, we're retiring. And I say that in a positive way. I noticed that even during my years at Sprint and shortly before that, Millennials and then Gen X, Gen Y, your key workers, they really do care about these issues, you know, around purpose and, and corporate responsibility. And especially in the new world where the barriers to exit are going to be lowered dramatically because of the ability to have so many jobs done remotely. People, if they don't like what the company is doing, if they're not doing the right thing, they will leave and go work somewhere else. And I really believe that. And that'll be a big check, if you will, to companies committing to do the right thing and then deciding, well, geez, uh, you know, I never mind, as Roseanne, Rosanna Dana would say, and go back on it. So I, I think the demographic changes will make sure that we that we don't drop back. I think the changes we're going to see in remote work, as I mentioned earlier, will make it really hard for companies to step back. I also think that other things, like each month that goes by, it becomes more and more evident that climate change is an existential threat. I mean, it's just like how much more evidence. So it's really hard to stop back, you know, start backing off on that one when you know you look at the weather report practically, you know, every day. You know, I kind of saw COVID as a tipping point in that it really highlighted for the American people and a lot of executives for the first time, perhaps in their careers, but made it just so, so much more evident how truly important the people were on the front line and, and learning much more about what they were going through with school closures, you know, the focus on things like childcare and what have you. There's so much more attention being given to the plight of the frontline worker and knowledge. A lot of my friends who were CEOs, they had good hearts, but they just, quite frankly, didn't even know how people living on minimum wage really live like. They just didn't even know, and now they do. And I think that's kind of in their heart and in their mind. And I think that'll that'll make a difference. They've they've seen that. 
And the other thing that happened during COVID, and I don't think we'll go back, was the murder of George Floyd. And I think on the DNI side, I saw companies immediately, we've been making gradual progress in terms of racial equity, and we're not nearly where we need to be. But that was a catalyst for significant action. So there will be pressure with the recession, but I, I don't think we'll, we'll be moving backwards on this. I really don't. It might slow progress, but I don't think we'll move backwards. How do you talk about these things now that you're sitting in a very different position as a chairman of the board? So when you think about the way that you're guiding the team at Akamai, have you seen this change in terms of, you know, Sean and I have talked about in the past, like there's this peoplefication of the boardroom. Are you seeing that in your own experience with that company and talking about, is this is a top of mind thing in a way that it wasn't a decade ago in terms of how companies are thinking about their people? Absolutely. So, you know, for example, at Akamai, we changed what used to be the compensation committee is now the TLC committee. And that's, you know, talent and leadership committee, but it's this intense focus on the well-being of our people. What used to be the nominating governance committee is now the ESG committee. We've changed the committee charters. We've changed how we spend time. We've changed what is being talked about at the board. We spend a lot of time at the board, Akamai, and it's, it's public. It's out there on the website, has done a lot of work around its purpose and mission. All the board members were very involved in that. So the change has been dramatic at the board level in terms of the time, focus, attention, and priority the board puts on these issues. Talk a little bit about Just. I mean, how did that come about? We haven't even talked about that yet in terms of your board member at Just Capital. And tell us about how that came about and what your mission is there. Well, I had just retired. And I actually just a couple months ago, also retired from being a member of the business council. And the CEO of Just, and the founder came and spoke to the business council about what they were doing. And I thought it was a fantastic idea because they were, to coin maybe my own phrase, creating the CR of CR, which is the kind of the consumer reports of corporate responsibility, and that they were going to go out and actually measure how companies were doing in areas of corporate responsibility you know, in a quantitative way and ranking them and publishing it. But they were determining what companies ought to be doing, not on what they thought or what CEOs in the room thought. What I really like about Just Capital's approach to it is every year they survey thousands of Americans on what behavior do you want to see from the companies you buy products from, go to work for, or invest in. And what was very clear from the start, and that's why I, you know, I quickly joined the board of Just Capital, which is a nonprofit, is that Americans are very bought into stakeholder capitalism. They want to see companies serve customers well, their shareholders well, their communities well, the planet well, but most of all, their workers. That has been consistent. And what's amazing about the data of Just Capital, it's about that probably maybe the only thing that in terms of the focus on workers, the results of the survey are almost identical, whether it's a Republican, a Democrat, or an independent. I mean, that, that's almost unheard of today. They want companies that treat their people really well. And the two things, there's many, many areas, little subcategories, that they look at pay and benefits, particularly those kind of on the front line, and then gender and racial pay equity, kind of fairness as well. 
And what Just does, and what I like about our approach is we put all the information out there on the website so you can look at a particular issue or we weight, if you will, the, these issues based upon how important they are to the American people in terms of the overall rankings. We recognize and put a spotlight on the companies that really do well. Rather than shaming those that aren't doing so well, we recognize, highlight, give great PR to those companies that are doing well and set them up as examples for other companies to emulate. The one example of what we do is we have a kind of a gender equity scorecard. And there's five categories with specific goals. And the bad news is that not many companies are hitting all those five goals. The good news is five times more companies hit them this year than last year. So we're making a lot of progress. So just again, it's a nonprofit, but it really ranks companies and provides information to the public on how companies are doing in various areas of, of corporate responsibility or stakeholder capitalism. Then you stepped into the CEO role as Sprint in December 2007. And so it was, I think, a very similar time to right now in that less than a year later, we were heading into a very serious economic downturn. What's the one piece of advice you have for all leaders, folks leading companies, folks leading organizations, heading into what looks like is going to be a, a rocky economic situation in terms of both leading their companies, but then also keeping the things that we've talked about for the past you know, 30 minutes or so in mind in terms of advancing all the things that we care about, equity, corporate social responsibility, the well-being of employees. What's the headline takeaway you have for leaders heading into this time? Well, I kind of hit on it earlier. And, you know, I think it's important to have, and these three things have to support each other, is to have a good strategy, a good team, you know, kind of what you're doing, who's doing it, and a positive culture, how you do it. Define your culture, define it, put it in writing, and then measure it and then communicate how you're doing with your people and engage them, you know, in your culture and telling you what they like or what they don't like about it. And I think this communication, it creates this two-way street where employees are so much more involved and aware of issues around purpose and culture. I mean, we're seeing it now where companies are taking action, they're taking stances on political issues that are largely being driven by their people. So your people expect it. You know, your people expect to know what the company stands for. If you're a CEO, if you're a leader, make sure that you define the culture, you, you measure it, that you communicate how you're doing it and how you're doing with your people and you discuss it regularly. That's something that, that should apply to any company in the industry. Thank you so much, Dan. We'll leave it at that. But Hopefully folks got a really good masterclass on how to do this well and how to do it in an environment that on the surface would potentially seem not conducive to focusing on culture. But I think you've taught us a lot about what that means and what what that can do truly to a company and the results. So thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome, Marie. One thing I would add that uh, you know I kind of didn't mention with respect to culture is another way to make great progress and traction, and we talked about engaging people, is people do what they're paid to do and what gets put on the agenda. And put cultural items into compensation. And it's amazing how quickly they take hold and also put it on the agenda. So for example, the customer experience was a key part of our culture. It was the first thing on every one of my agendas for seven years. And what that tends to do is it cascades down the agendas 
of all those meetings that take place you know, kind of throughout the company to get their boss ready for their boss's meeting and then their boss's meeting, et cetera. The other thing I would say is that if you've seen a culture or a leader that you like or that you think does it well, storytell, visualize. What I did when I got to Sprint is I thought the greatest example of leadership I had ever seen was Sir Ernest Shackleton on his unsuccessful voyage to the South Pole. I heard from hundreds of people about two months ago when they found the endurance, they found the ship underneath the Antarctic. And what I did was I bought a hundred DVDs and sent it to my top hundred leaders at Sprint of the PBS documentary called The Endurance, narrated by Liam Neeson. It's a fantastic, fantastic show. But it shows what I told them is this is the kind of culture, this is the kind of leadership that I'm talking about. And there are various examples of like Shackleton and his top officers giving the warm feather sleeping bags to the men and they slept in the not so good wool bags. And you go right down all of these examples and so people could visualize as well, you know, what a great culture looks like and, and emulate it. So anyway, I thought I would throw that in because you, you reminded me of something great. It's a great example and potentially from your upbringing. I mean, you were bopping around U.S. Army bases in Europe. And I think certainly from my experience working with veterans, I've learned a lot about the team over self mentality. And that that example and analogy certainly emphasizes that key point, I think. Thank you, Dan, for leading the way that you've led and for influencing other leaders and for creating a world where we can share phone chargers. I think <laughs> that's a, a great contribution to society. So. Everybody except Apple. They were the only one that didn't go along, by the way. <laughs> but Maria and Sean, this has been a really enjoyable discussion, and I appreciate all the great work that you've done. Absolutely. Thank you so much. <laughs>